he was one of the guys that you see as an example in the movie Roots who went down to the coast of Africa and bought and sold men, women, and children into slavery. And then, through a set of circumstances, met Jesus and repented of his slave trading and became a Christian pastor and wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Is God's grace, let me ask you, is God's grace sufficient to save a man who made his living selling other people into slavery? Yes. You better believe that it is. It is. Let me ask you another question. Uh, imagine you are a new Christian and, and someone who's only been following Jesus for a couple of years or maybe not even that long, and late one night, hours after you have gone to bed, you hear this sound. And you come to the door. And a man stands there on the other side of the door. And you, as you open it in your pajamas, and you find the angry face of one of your country's top religious leaders and lined up behind him a squad of armed men and they ask you are you a christian and when you say yes they say we thought so you're under arrest and they haul you off to prison without so much as a goodbye into your family you are taken off into the night where you will spend the next few years in prison. And when you get settled in there, you get your orange jumpsuit and your six by six. You realize this man has been empowered by your country's top religious authorities to imprison anyone who admits to being a Christian and that he also, you find out, has also participated in a lynch mob that put a young preacher in your congregation to death. Now let me ask you a question. Can God save that guy? The leader of the lynch mob the leader of the religious police going about arresting Christians? Can God forgive a man who led a mob to kill a man who preached in his name? Yes. Can he, can he be among the people who go to heaven? Yes. Because who are we talking about? Paul, the apostle who wrote Romans. The ringleader of the lynch mob, the arrester and persecutor of the church, the one who pulled people out of their homes and sent them to prison is the very one who is writing us the letter that we are reading. Because God's grace is Amazing grace. Amen? God can save any 
one, and he can use anyone and everyone to accomplish his purposes and saving out of a wicked world a people for himself. Amen? So, I want to show you the words of the gospel and, and, and explain to us how it is that a guy who made his living as a slave trader or a guy who made his living persecuting Christians could actually come into relationship with God. How does that happen? There, there is quite a transformation by any standard. How, that a guy who used to persecute Christians becomes one. And not only becomes a Christian, but is probably history's greatest missionary for the Christian faith. How does that happen? How does a guy who makes is living at one stage of his life selling people into slavery in the rest of his life make his living telling people how they can be set free from sin and death. How does that happen? Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, I invite you to turn there. That tells us how this kind of transformation occurs. Paul begins, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, if you've got your Bible, I want you to look at that beginning word there, verse 16, the word for, because it marks... a verse 16 as a conclusion all the things he has been saying he's going to give you a conclusion from that and what he's just been saying is how eager he is to preach to everyone who is in Rome he talks about how God has called him to preach to the wise and to the foolish which is another way of saying to everybody to the Greek and to the barbarian. The, the, the Greek is the person who who's, has an understanding of Greek, the common language of the day, the, the lingua franca of trade and of the Roman Empire. Everybody spoke Greek if you were part of the Roman Empire, but also to the barbarian, meaning the non-Greek speaker. Have you all ever imitated somebody who speaks another language than you? Okay, the Greeks did that too. Uh, that's kind of an old custom if you, <laughs> as people interact between cultures, right? Um, one of the funnier conversations we ever had at my house was with my brother-in-law, who, uh, who is a Chinese national. And he's like, let me tell you what you all sound like, <laughs> right? And then we said, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you what you sound like, <laughs> right? But to a Greek-speaking per Greek person, someone who did not speak Greek, was someone who made these kinds of sounds. Bar, 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 bar. Okay, and they, that, that sound came into their language as a barbarian. Okay, a non-Greek speaker, right? And he's saying, in other words, it's another way of saying to everybody. And I'm eager to preach to everyone. And he is not ashamed to do this. 
meaning that he is boldly proclaiming it. He's not embarrassed to tell people that Jesus Christ, uh, through his death and resurrection, is the only way into a right relationship with God, where your sin is forgiven and you're welcomed into God's family forever. In other words, when, Paul, when people are talking to Paul about what is it that you do, Paul, he doesn't look at the ground and kick the dirt and tell people, well, I preach the gospel. He's not embarrassed by this. He's excited about it. He's excited about it. And when he's called on and given an opportunity to proclaim Christ, he looks them in the eye and gives them the gospel straight up. And in the rest of this verse, he tells us why he is so bold in his gospel proclamation. So that we don't make the mistake of just attributing that to Paul's personality. We're thinking, well, he's, a, he's an apostle, so, you know, naturally these things, you know, they just kind of go together, you know, boldness, apostleship, you know. I mean, he was kind of an obnoxious guy before God changed him and he uses now his obnoxiousness to preach the gospel. No, that's not why. That's not the reason. The reason is, and he tells us, because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. Of everyone. In other words, Paul knows that, that God empowers his gospel proclamation. Because the gospel is the power of God that brings about the salvation of everyone. And you know, here's the thing. Whenever I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I know they're starting to get it. When they start to ask me this kind of question. And they'll say, wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that a slave trader can come to faith in Jesus? Or, you know, they pick somebody, a few years ago, the question used to always center around Jeffrey Dahmer, okay? Those of you who aren't old enough to remember, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer had a number of his neighbors over for lunch, literally, okay? Serious enough, he did, okay? They found pieces of him in his fridge. And, um, and they would say, are you telling me that Jesus can save Jeffrey are you serious? Yes. In fact, there's good evidence that Jeffrey, in fact, was converted to Christ in prison before he was killed by the other inmates who were there and who found Jeffrey's uh, past life to be beyond what they were willing to put up with. And you may see Jeffrey, in fact, in heaven because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of, what does it say? What does the text say? Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And the answer, you know, when I'm talking to people and they ask me this question, the answer they're expecting me to give, by the way, is this. Well, you know, there are exceptions. There are exceptions. I mean, well, you know, certainly not Jeff. 
and certainly not whoever you happen to think is particularly heinous. You know, well, not that politician that you hate, or not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because everybody has kind of a sliding scale of people they would like not to be in heaven, right? Like, I, would, I, would, I, I think heaven is great, but I would like this person and that person also not to be there, <laughs> right? Because that would be more like hell than like heaven for me, right? And, and that is not the attitude we're to have, right? Because the gospel is the transforming power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so they're always shocked when we have this conversation and I say to them, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That God's grace really does reach that far. In fact, God's grace extends so low that no one can sink beyond the reach of God's grace. As low as you can get, and you can get pretty low. I mean, do people have an unlimited capability for wickedness? Yes, they do. We'll read more about that next week. Um, verses 18 to 32 of this same chapter. People have an extensive capacity for evil. In fact, it says uh, in one of those verses uh, in the rest of the chapter, they invent new ways of doing evil. Some of us are creative with reference to our sin, right? We do things that people haven't thought of doing before. And yet, as this verse makes clear, God's grace reaches to all who believe. Not just to the nice, not just to the kind, not just to the cleaned up, not just to the ones who don't have any tattoos, uh, not just to whoever you think should be on that list, to everyone who believes. And that is, in fact, the only condition that you believe. The gospel can save everyone. Amen? That is true, but you have to read carefully what the text says. The gospel, the word here does not simply say the gospel is the power of God for, the salva for salvation to everyone. It also adds this conditional phrase, who believes. In other words, God does not save everyone without any limit. He saves everyone who believes without any limit. It is this faith is the sole condition, but is a necessary condition. You must believe. When a person puts his or her complete reliance on Jesus Christ in his death on the cross as their substitute, dying in their place for their sin, and believing in his resurrection from the dead to give them new life, then, no matter who they are, they receive new life. New life is immediately present. He or she has passed from death into life. They have been, as Colossians says, bought by the blood of Jesus from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. 
but it is faith that is the, both the sufficient condition, it actually accomplishes your salvation, and the necessary condition, meaning it is required that you believe. You must be born again. You must receive salvation by faith in Christ. And God saves through that faith all kinds of people. Now, before we move on, let me quickly address the last line of that verse. It says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, that phrase has two aspects. Um, it first is a description of Paul's ministry and how he went about proclaiming the gospel. That whenever he went anywhere as a Jew, he would go first to the synagogue and he would proclaim Christ as the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation to these people so that they would know, hey, you all have been waiting for the Messiah all this time. Guess what? He showed up. And it's Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. And you need to believe in him. And he would go to the Jew first because the Messiah that we enjoy, the word that we receive, the people who sent it to us, guess what? They all had one thing in common. They were all Jews. And so the gospel is to the Jew first because they are and they were and they are and remain God's specially chosen people to carry out his purposes in the world. Now, later in the book, he's going to tell us how come the majority of the church then, Paul, are not Jews. Okay, chapter 8 and 9, hang in for that. Paul answers that question. Okay, short answer, because God is saving you in the interim. Okay, but he says it's for the Jew first, but it's also for the Gentile. It's also for the Gentile. And, and it, it, it overflows the blessings of the gospel, the blessings of the word of God, the blessings of God's prophets, the blessings of God's Messiah overflow. They slosh over on us who are not Jewish. And it was the fulfillment of promises to Israel, but it's also through your seed, Abraham, all the world will be blessed. Have we been greatly blessed as God kept his promise? Yes, indeed. It has overflowed to us. Now, how do we receive this kind of change that God promises to us here in his word. Verse 17 tells us, for in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this verse explains verse 16. It starts with four again. So Verse 16 starts with 4, and it explains the previous verses, why he's eager to preach the gospel. Verse 17 the, starts with 4, and he's giving us an explanation as to why and how the gospel saves everyone who believes. 
and he is explaining in summary form the rest of the book of Romans, if you will. How it is that the righteousness of God is revealed. And I want to look at, look at that phrase, in fact, the righteousness of God is revealed. There's a little interpretive question here. You'll discuss it in small groups if you're in a small group, which if you're not in a small group, repent and join a small group. <laughs> All right? Um, but because you need, you need brothers and sisters and fellowship and people who will pray for you and stand with you and encourage you, okay? But here's the interpretive question, okay? Does the phrase, the righteousness of God, mean that in the gospel, God is showing himself to be a righteous God? That's option one, okay? Or option two, does it mean that in the gospel, it shows how we as people receive the righteousness of God, which is necessary for us to enter into relationship with him, okay? Now, my answer to this question, I'll just tell you, I'll, since not, not all of you are in my small group, uh, I'll just tell you what my answer is, okay? It is the same answer if someone asked me if I would like chocolate or vanilla. Yes. <laughs> okay, I believe both things are true. I believe both things are true, and, and I believe God is smart enough to be able to communicate to us two truths in one phrase, right? And what he is saying, in other words, is that the gospel reveals how God is a righteous God. Is that true? Yes, because the fundamental question of your Bible is not how can a loving God send people to hell? That is not the question. The, the question of your Bible, if you want to boil it all down, the central question that the Bible answers is this. How is it that a holy God can bring sinful people into relationship with himself who is righteous? How can God who is holy have relationship with us who are not? And the answer is in the gospel God reveals how he remains righteous and loves and saves sinners. How does that happen? It's very simple. God, who is righteous, sent his son, who is also righteous, to die in our place, in the place of unrighteous people, and to make a swap with us. He, we trade at the cross. We trade our unrighteousness and sin for his righteousness and holiness. And he takes our sin off of us and onto his shoulders and bears it and dies in our place for it. Or as Peter says, Christ died for sins, the, un the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There's the swap if you will. That we lay our unrighteousness on him, he lays his righteousness on us, and then God gets to do two things at the same time, punish sin and, and still be righteous and still require his righteousness from us. Except that we get it, if you will, on credit. It is given to us as a gift. 
And so God is still righteous. His righteous standard of holiness and death for sin is still upheld. Amen? But it is upheld not in our death, but in the death of Christ. And so God punishes sin and shows his righteousness. And at the same time, saves you and me. And he does it by giving us righteousness that's not ours. Okay? And, and this verse explains, in other words, how God is still a righteous God and how we can get the righteousness of God that we need if we are going to go to heaven. Amen? Because you cannot come into God's presence as a sinful person. You can't. You will be destroyed in your sin by the holiness of God unless you receive an alien righteousness, something that does not belong to you, but which is credited to you. How do you get it? Well, this verse tells us. We appropriate the righteousness of God by faith. By faith. Now, the next little phrase there in your, in your Bible um, I don't know what translation you might be reading. The, the ESV reads, from faith for faith. Um, the, the NIV has it a little more clear. Um, it says, by faith from beginning, uh, um, by faith from first to last. Okay, that's a helpful rendering. Uh, the, the Greek text literally, literally reads, out of faith into faith. And it's an idiomatic expression. And what it means is, is that it is by faith from first to last that we receive the righteousness of Christ and we receive it out as an outgrowth of our faith and it takes us back into faith, which carries us all the way to the end. That there is no part of our Christian life, in other words, which does not rest upon and grow out of faith in Christ. In other words, the gospel is not something that you just need as a baby Christian. Amen? It is something which sustains your entire Christian life from beginning to end. It is not where you start from. It is where you wind up at the end, in the middle, and at the beginning. It's all by faith. You are not saved by faith and then earn your way to heaven after that by being really good. No, you are saved by faith, you are made holy by faith, and you die in faith and receive glory by faith. It is by faith from first to last, from beginning to end. It happens by faith. And nothing else needs to be added to faith in God through the gospel in order to receive God's righteousness uh, to you and have it be credited to your account by the death of Christ. Nothing needs to be added to this. Your faith is, as the Reformers had it, sola fide, by faith alone. In Christ alone, and it is received by grace alone. Amen? We're going to talk about those later in the year. We're going to talk about sola gratia, by grace alone. We're going to talk about sola fide, by faith alone. And solus Christus, in Christ alone. And then we're going to talk about 
Sola Deo Gloria, how Bach used to sign his hymns, okay? To the glory of God alone. That God accomplishes these things for his own glory, to magnify his goodness and righteousness in the world. And if a person of any type wants to receive the righteousness of God, there is one way to do it, and it is by faith in Christ alone, which you receive from God as a gift, not because of your wonderful specialness, not because of your achievement or your effort or your straining to be religious. In fact, Paul is going to condemn all the self-righteous religious from chapter 2 and 3 on. <laughs> okay? There's no way to get there by that way. The only way is this way, by faith. As it is written, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, when Paul is saying there, I don't know how many of you have done your, your devotions of recent in Habakkuk. Uh, you ought to. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just four short chapters about how God is still working in a day when it seems like things are going sideways. And in fact, when God is bringing judgment onto a nation. How does that happen? How is God still at work? And, he, and God speaks to Habakkuk right in the middle of the book, and he says, the righteous will live by faith. And he doesn't simply mean um, the righteous will live in eternity by faith. He means also the righteous will live their life right now by faith. And he is telling Habakkuk two important things, that his people need to trust him no matter the circumstances, to put their faith in him right now. And also that life, this life, is not all there is. And that by faith there is a new life for those who trust in him. And, and Paul quotes Habakkuk to underline for them who are his original readers and for us who are reading today, the same important message. That this is not a new thing. Paul didn't invent this, in other words. That God has been telling people for thousands and thousands and thousands of years that the only way into relationship with him, if you want to be a righteous, you've got to be a righteous person. How do I get it? By faith. And you live by faith. You live now, you live in eternity by faith in God's Messiah. Back then they looked forward to a Messiah that was still to come. Now we look back on a Messiah that has come and will come by faith. And that is the gospel that Paul is not ashamed to preach. That, the, that God reveals his righteousness in such a way in the gospel that he displays his righteousness and gives his righteousness to everyone who believes, everyone, all kinds of people. Now, these two verses have a lot of application for us, but I just want to highlight a couple things, okay? First, and this is very important, I feel like 
feel like I say this every week, but I never get tired of telling you. You must believe the gospel. You must believe the gospel. Jesus, when he was asked, how do I enter into new life? He said this, you must be born again. And by that he meant you must be a person who has put their trust in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. You must believe in his death on the cross as your substitute, taking your sin and giving you his righteousness. And by faith, you receive new life as you believe in what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection for you. Then you are born anew, born of the Spirit, receive new life. But you must, by faith, receive a new relationship with God through faith in Christ. You must. There is no other way. One of the great scenes in uh, the series uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Remember this? Uh, my favorite book is actually not The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, although that's a good one. Uh, my favorite book is actually when Jill and Eustace go back. I think that's the... Uh, the uh, which one is that? I think it's the... Uh, huh? It's the one where um, it's the one where they meet Puddle Glum, okay? A silver chair. That's exactly right. All right, they meet Puddle Glum, and Jill winds up sitting next to. She winds up uh, being very thirsty, and she comes to a stream, and right next to this stream, there's an enormous lion. Enormous. And she says, "I need a drink." And he says, if you want a drink, you have to come through me. And she says, well, won't you move out of the way? And he says, no, I won't. The only way to get a drink is through me. And she says, well, I'll go look for another stream. And he says, no, there is no other stream. This is the only one that will satisfy your thirst. And she says, well, I find you terrifying. And he says, that's good. Come get a drink. And she, by faith, trusts in the goodness of the lion and comes and has her thirst satisfied. But there is no other stream. And you have to come through the lion of the tribe of Judah to have living water inside yourself. Amen. This is the only way you must believe the gospel. Second thing, for those of us who are believers, and again, I feel like I say this all the time, but I don't get tired of saying it. In fact, uh, hopefully I will die in the pulpit someday, and the last thing out of my mouth will be this. Go and preach the gospel. Go and preach the the gospel, because God saves all kinds of people through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone 
who believes, everyone who believes, can be saved through the gospel. Not just the people we think are really near to God, but to all the people running away from him as fast as they can. The salvation of everyone who believes. And when we realize that, it ought to cause us to do two things. Number one, it ought to cause us as we worship to magnify God's grace and wondrous praise. That we are in awe that God in his grace would look and save a wretch like me. I can tell you all afternoon, I won't, because there's no purpose in me magnifying my sin in front of you, but I could tell you a long list of all the kinds of things of, of which I have done and of which I am deeply ashamed and when I sing of God's amazing grace, I look at my sin in contrast to God's grace, and I say, hallelujah, that God has saved a wretch like me. Amen? But the, that is the glory and the beauty and the driver of our worship, that God is so good that he saves people like me. And by the way, like you, as well. I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you knew everything there is to know about me, everything that God knows about me, you would not let me stand up here and preach to you about God. Okay? But it's okay, because if I knew everything about you that God knows about you, I wouldn't let you in this building. <laughs> <laughs> okay because we're all a bunch of wretches right we are all a bunch of people who were going to hell on a rocket ship who were working our way there as fast as we could go and god snatched us from the fire so magnify and worship and give praise to the god who does that Amen? And then number two, as an aspect of our worship then, go boldly into the world and proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God. It's not by our effort. It's the power of God that we go and proclaim to all creation today are among the kinds of people whom God saves. If they would just believe. Amen? Now, we, uh, we're going to sing here in just a minute. I um, want to give you kind of an inside look into this. I told you this year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. That's true. Uh, one of the reasons I am preaching Romans to you, one of the things, one of the reasons I'm going to preach to you the solas of the Reformation and when we get to October is because we want to celebrate the gospel. And this year, uh, especially, the, the recovery of the gospel being preached to the world, which is what the Reformation was all about. It was about this verse, in fact, uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 17 is the verse that touched off the Reformation. 
that the righteousness of God is revealed out of faith, in the faith, the righteous live by faith. And one of the things we want to do also is to celebrate and to teach our heritage to people who may not have ever been exposed to it. Uh, and one aspect of that is, is uh, we're going to sing a hymn at the end of every service while we're in Romans. We're going to do one hymn every week, okay? Uh, because I found out that if, if you grow up in the church today, different than when I was growing up, you don't a lot of times learn hymns. And so we're going to learn hymns and learn how to uh, worship God with the people who went before us because we proclaim the same faith that they died for and lived out. Okay, so this week what we're, we're going to do is we're going to sing all creatures of our God and King, um, which is uh, written by St. Francis of Assisi uh, in the year 1252. It is one of the oldest hymns still in your hymn book, um, and it has been continuously sung uh, it is based on Psalm 148. If you, re if you uh, read Psalm 148, you'll see it follows the same kind of pattern uh, where uh, you call on the angels and the moon and the stars and the sun and the mountains and the oceans and the hail and the snow and the rain and all the creatures on the earth and every person on the earth, uh, all the sky and all the things that are in them and on the ocean and all of that, that all things are to praise God uh, from the high to the lowly, uh, that all things on earth are to give praise to God. So uh, we're going to sing that, and then um, we're going to have a baptism today. Uh, Lucas DuPont is going to be baptized um, because he has passed from death to life. And uh, we're going to talk to you a little bit about what baptism means. But, but in the meantime, let's sing, and then we'll uh, do this baptism. All right?